Uh, good morning from me. My name is Peter. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at the church. Um, is it good to be at church today? Yeah, cool. For those who are new to the project, we're working through the Gospel of John. Um, the, the word gospel means good news, and it's good news about Jesus, all right? Uh, the Gospel of John is an eyewitness account to the life and ministry of Jesus. It's actually different to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, so uh, in the Bible, there's four Gospels about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels by theologians, which means that they have a, they have a similar view of who Jesus is. John isn't one of the synoptic Gospels. Uh, he just tells the story differently. He's very interested in telling you not just about what happened, but about why it happened and what it means. Uh, and that's why I think he's, uh, he's not considered one of the synoptics. Another uh, fun fact about uh, the Gospel of John, which you may or may not know, is it's actually the Gospel of John for which we have the oldest known fragment of a copy. All right? Um, and I'll show, actually, I'll show it to you. There it is there. So it's actually a fragment of uh, John 18. It's John 18, 31 to 33, and on the back it's verse 37 to 38. And this, uh, this fragment is, uh, they think, somewhere between 100 and 150 AD uh, is, is where it actually dates to. Uh, I've heard people say it's, it's about 120, 125. Um, so that's, that's not really cool. Now, you might go, well, when did John write it? Well, John wrote his gospel probably in the 1890s is when he wrote it, uh, people think. So it's about 30 years later and you go, oh, that's a long time because we just get a news feed in like five seconds when someone... Poster, but in terms of ancient history, this is like super, super, super tight in a really good way in terms of timelines. So there you go. There's a couple of fun facts about John. Um, we're, we just finished uh, chapter 4 uh, and up until this point in the Gospel of John, things are going pretty well. Outside of the clearing of the temple, which is kind of an initiative that Jesus takes, there isn't any real significant opposition to Jesus. I mean, John flags it early on in his gospel that there's people who are against Jesus but mostly we've we've uh, seen people who are, are curious and drawn in and it's all just a little bit enchanted in a good way isn't it it's things just seem to be going well but as we kick into chapter five everything changes we we begin to see that Jesus has entered a contested space and, and we shouldn't be surprised if you look at the story of the bible uh, the, the world was once perfect and people turned from God. We, we uh, as humanity, have drifted a long way from what God intends. So you would expect that when the true human shows up and starts walking around, he's going to be very different. <laughs> and there's going to be some people who've got different agendas and different ideas to what he has, and they're going to push back on him. And that's actually what we see today. We see that Jesus has entered, as Nathan flagged before, he's entered a world that's at war and you know we can talk about that from a spiritual point of view but you all know from uh, being part of our culture that there is a battle between good and evil in our culture and it's a very very real one so what we'd expect to see with Jesus is as he drops into this world that's at war that um, there's going to be some pushback there's pushback on his counter offensive and I say this to you, his presence guarantees that good things are going to happen. That's what we see in the Gospels. Uh, but it is by definition a contested space. And this is what we actually see today 
in John chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to, um, to look, look that up. Go to uh, John chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 1 to 17. John chapter 5, verse 1 to 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Don't know what feast it is. If John doesn't tell us, it's because it doesn't really matter. Uh, if it did matter, he would have told us. Um, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic, Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, probably hundreds, blind, lame and paralyzed now if you're reading the ESV you'll notice that we go from verse 3 to 5 all right verse 4 is missing there'll probably be a footnote about verse 4 and the reason is is that textual critics people who work out what was the original text of the bible uh, recognize that uh, verse um, verse 4 was a later edition it probably wasn't written by John it was an explanatory kind of note to help people to understand what's going on but I think you can work out most of what verse 4 is from the rest of the text anyway let's keep reading one man who was there sorry one man was there who had been an invalid we don't know what kind of invalid probably a cripple for 38 years it's a long time when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and when I'm going, another steps down before me. So there's obviously some kind of superstition about this water. Um, theologians kind of suggest that the water rippled every now and then because there was some kind of intermittent spring, but there was a superstition that went along with it. If you could just get in the water, you'd be okay. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, you don't need the water, buddy. <laughs> Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once a man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Does anyone want to headbutt them? I do. I just go, someone needs to do something about those guys. We'll get, more, get to more of that later. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Let's start with the man. You can leave your Bible open there, verse 5 to 9. On the surface of it, this all looks like an amazing story, right? Incredible story. This cripple for 38 years gets healed. It's amazing. But it isn't one of these stories where everything checks out perfectly. I wonder whether you've ever, you've ever watched a cheesy Christian movie. And, and the plot line is perfect, isn't it? And like everything just plays out perfectly and you sit there and you go, well, that's really nice, but that's not how real life rolls. And it, it's a bit like that with this story. This story is not one of these ones that just kind of plays out exactly the way that you would expect. This is kind of a warts and all kind of story. Uh, it isn't a magic fairy tale where everything goes well, even though an amazing 
miracle actually happens. Let's, let's start with this man. You know, if you're expecting this man to be like the, uh, the royal official from last week, you're going to be really disappointed because he's a bit of an interesting character. Let me run a few things through a few things about the man. Well, he's, he's been an invalid for 38 years. Like I said, we don't, don't really know why, but obviously he can't actually move himself enough to get into the water when the water ripples. So he's got some significant issue there. And it's cause for mercy. You know, 38 years is a long time. Imagine being incapacitated like that for 38 years. What's interesting about this man is once we get past the condition that he's got that, you know, needs mercy, things get less flattering for this man. Let me run through a few things. Here's here's a freaky one. Uh, His suffering seems to be directly tied with a specific sin in his life. All right? And you just, ooh. What does Jesus say when he finds him later in the temple? See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. He's, he's a cripple, he's an invalid because of some sin of his. Now, I want to head down this rabbit hole just for a little minute, okay, because it raises something which it oftentimes has been abused in the church. You know, Jesus is connecting his specific physical suffering with a specific sin. We don't know what that is, but that's what Jesus is doing. Uh, when, he, when Jesus makes that statement, he, he makes that very clear and there's no real doubt about that. But I want you to just pull up for a minute before you actually start running into thinking, is that the case for everyone? Because it's just not the case for everyone. I've had to deliver pastoral care to people who some people in churches have gone up to them and said, you've got this problem with your body because you've sinned or you've got some un." confess sin in your life. I just want to lay down a few points for you about uh, our understanding of a a good biblical theology of uh, sin and suffering. Here's the first part of it. Before sin entered the world, there was no suffering. Straightforward. Sin enters the world and what we actually have is suffering arrives. So in a general sense, all suffering is connected to sin. Is uh, the third point. All sin leads to some kind of direct suffering. Now, we might use a different word for this. Uh, the word would be consequences. There's always consequences uh, to our sin. Does it lead to, uh, to suffering for us? Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to God and, um, and his law, when we break it, there's no such thing as a victimless crime. You sin against yourself, you sin against other people, you sin against God. It always leads to some kind of suffering. Uh, and sometimes people can sin in ways that have a profound effect on them personally. Um, if you are an alcoholic, you will suffer in lots of different ways. You'll suffer physically, you'll suffer emotionally, you'll suffer relationally. Uh, I mean, we could go on. And the good news about who God is, is that God is a compassionate God toward people who bring suffering upon themselves. So all of us, in some way or another, we bring suffering into our lives when we turn away from God. It's not the only place that suffering comes from, but sin actually does bring about suffering. Um, here's the fourth one. 
Sometimes God directly afflicts people with illness or death as judgment on their sin. We actually do see this in the Bible. And one of the really scary ones is actually uh, 1 Corinthians 11. You know, where Paul warns the Corinthians that some people have actually died because they took communion in an unrighteous way. I mean, you can go to Acts 5, you can talk about Ananias and Sapphira who lied to God. And what does he do? He kills them. I mean, it's a fearful thing, but there are times where there, there is suffering that is directly connected to sin. Number five, but not all suffering is connected to specific sin. It's not the only reason why people suffer. There isn't a direct connection between everyone's suffering and specific sin. And we know this, if you've got your Bibles open, you can go to uh, John chapter 9, because later on in John, uh, John makes, this, um, makes this point. John chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. And three, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, this is Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse three, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What does Jesus do? He says, sin is not the only reason, specific sin is not the only reason why people experience suffering. There are other reasons. And here's where, where I want to finish in terms of a, uh, a quick cook's tour of uh, a biblical theology of sin and suffering. While not all physical suffering is directly connected to a specific sin, all suffering is connected to sin generally. You know, to just face up to it in a really intense way here, we all, because we've turned from God, we deserve the worst. All of us. And every single person who's alive on the face of the planet now is getting better than they deserve. That's what the Bible teaches. You know, there's a, um, there's a discussion between, the, um, between Jesus and some people who come up to him and talk about these brutal events that had, that had happened. You can read it later on in Luke 13, 1 to 5. You know, and, and, the, and the people having this discussion say to Jesus, are they like really, really bad people because this thing happened? And Jesus basically answers and he goes, listen, you're all bad people. And that calamity may not have happened to you yet, but if you don't repent, it's going to happen to you. And he's talking about God's judgment falling upon them. So hopefully that's enough to get your head around it. Now, the obvious question is, how do you know when... A particular suffering is tied to a specific sin? Well, that's a whole other question at that point in time, but I think we'd just be best to stay away from, from that one. Come back with me to the man. An invalid for 38 years, his suffering was directly connected to his sin. This one. Didn't know who Jesus was before he was healed. Now, um, this is interesting, right? Uh, this is not a negative thing about the man. He just didn't know who Jesus was. Um, and how do we know that? Because Jesus goes up to him and he says, do you want to be healed? And the guy goes, I've got no one to get me in the water. Like if he knew who Jesus was, he wouldn't have said that because he's seeing Jesus as someone who maybe can help him get into the water but nothing more. And I want to say to you uh, as, a, as a brief kind of excursion again that this healing breaks the rules. You know, there are, there are people out there that want to say 
that you have to have faith to be healed. And you don't get healed unless you've got faith. And then you have a, need to have enough faith. This guy didn't have any faith. None. He had no idea about Jesus. He wasn't the royal official who knew who Jesus was. And he knew Jesus could do a few things. He didn't think Jesus could do anything except for drag him to the water. So if you want to say that faith always precedes healing, it does a lot of the time, but it doesn't all of the time. You can't make that a general rule. And as a side note, I'll probably add this one too, there are people that talk about the fact, and the scriptures refer to it in the Gospels, that Jesus healed everyone who came to him. Well, he didn't this time. He didn't heal everyone who came to him. How do we know? Because John tells us that Jesus slipped away in the crowd and the guy who got healed didn't even know who healed him. Huge. It breaks all the rules. The rules that people want to put in there. And so that's, that's another part for us. I mean, this guy gets this amazing healing. He doesn't, doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't really even know what actually happened to him. It's huge. And then the Jews come to him because he's carrying his mat and they go, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. What does he say? It's not my fault. <laughs> it was that guy. He was the one who said for me to do it. What's he doing? Throwing Jesus under the bus. That's what he's He's carrying his mat. And then later on Jesus finds him. What does he do after Jesus finds him? Well, he dobs him in. You see that? He goes to the Jews and he goes, actually, I found out who that guy is and you can go and talk to him if you want to do that. What do you think of this guy? Interesting character, right? Really interesting character. It's, it's a massive thing that God, that Jesus... God incarnate walks up to him and asks him this question, isn't it? He's not offering much (laughs) in terms of his character, in terms of who he is. He's in a lot of trouble. He's been an invalid for 38 years. He needs mercy. There's no doubt about that. And Jesus goes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And that's that's a really good question. You know, on the one hand, if he's an invalid, Jesus going up and offering to heal him, that actually might cut off his uh, income as a beggar, right? And that might actually slow him down a little bit. It's like, oh, do I actually, do I actually want to do this? Or it could be leading someone else because if you were busted for 38 years and had settled into it, you'd realise that that's a good question. It's easy for people when they're bound up and they're stuck in things in their impaired state, it's easy for those things to become home for them. You just work out how to manage it. You work out how to handle it. You have it all sorted out. And here's the truth. This can be true for us too. Sometimes our guilt and shame, our slavery become home to us. And to leave them would kind of feel weird. It's like, what would that be like? I remember uh, as a young guy having an extended period of time where I really struggled quite deeply with a whole bunch of things. And then there were some moments where God actually started to set me free from some things. And do you know something? It didn't feel... It was, I wanted it, but it felt weird. 
it felt a little bit scary at the time. It's like, oh, I don't know whether I actually, whoa, what would it be like to actually be out there? It's like I know my whole situation and I can manage it back here. What it would be like, what would it be like if I was actually free? And sometimes we, I didn't, but sometimes, I'm sure I have in the past, we can just go, I'll just stay here, thanks. I'll just stay here. Because uh, it's just safer. I know how things roll here. I know how to manage it. What's Jesus doing with this man? Well, he's asking a question. And then he does an amazing thing. Because <laughs> what we actually see here is just a, an amazing display of power and mercy. Isn't it? An undeserving man. An undeserving cripple. A sinner. Someone in need of mercy gets healed. And I'll tell you something, this is not, you know, don't think you're at the beach and this is the raised hand of a drowning swimmer. He hasn't got his hand up. <laughs> Doesn't know who Jesus is. Jesus comes in and with a creative word tells him to get up, take up his mat and walk and everything changes. This is a man that's been deformed by his own deeds he probably deserves the state that he's in, but Jesus comes in and lifts him up. Does that sound like anyone? Yeah? It's us too. That's the man. Number two, the Jews. Now, the big deal in the whole section about um, the Jews here from verse 10 to 16, if you've got your Bibles here, is this interchange about the Sabbath. Uh, the, the Jews ultimately think that the man and Jesus are in breach of the Sabbath. So let's just, we'll just stop for a moment and consider the nature of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath began, quick cooks tour, the Sabbath began in creation, the end of creation, God rests um, on the seventh day. Uh, from the beginning, it was meant to be a physical rest, which pointed to the other rest that God was going to give his people, uh, the ultimate of which is the rest from the works God, the rest from works that God would provide through the death of Jesus on the cross. The Sabbath was actually meant to be something to be enjoyed. Now, you get to the, uh, the top ten list, uh, the Ten Commandments, and we find out um, the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, it was prohibited to do work. The Sabbath was a Saturday, and you went to do work on it. So now it's a law. Now, <laughs> I find it a curious thing that we have to have a law about not doing work. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that tell you something about humanity, that we need to have a law about not doing work? Some people need a law to do work. <laughs> There's one of those too. But isn't that interesting? Um, so what, what does humanity do when a law comes out about not doing work, well, it's obvious. You've got to define what work is, right? That's kind of your next step. And the Jews had that one worked out too. The Jews actually had uh, defined work into 39 different classes of things that you couldn't actually do on the Sabbath. And this is not even a joke, but if you go to um, different parts of the world now, there are kind of, I think they're called uh, Shabbat elevators or Shabbos. Elevators, you know what they do? On the Sabbath, on Saturday, they stop at every floor. 
because it would be work to press a button. That's a true story. This is in the New York Times. So this, this is kind of what's going on uh, at this point in time. And so one of the rules in the 39 classes of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath for the Jews was you couldn't actually carry something from one place to another, which is what this guy is doing. And he's the one that they're after in the first instance. It's like, you shouldn't actually be doing this. And this is what they actually say. It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. <laughs> this is so frustrating. You get frustrated with this? This gets me angry. I get angry about it. And you know, Jesus gets angry about this kind of stuff too. Here you've got this amazing miracle that's actually taken place and then you've got the real keepers that come along and ping this guy for carrying his bed on the Sabbath. I need a headbutt. Several. True? It's frustrating. Do you get irritated by religion? Now, granted, right, it did contravene section dot, 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 paragraph dot, 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 clause dot, dot, dot. But this is crazy. The rules that they had aren't in the Bible. They're the ones that they added. And before long, the problem extends not just from the man, it extends to Jesus himself. And all of a sudden, Jesus is in trouble for healing someone on the Sabbath. You ever heard that saying, someone can't see the forest for the trees? I think that's what's going on here. They were stuck in the details and couldn't see the majesty of what was going on. Um, And I've I've heard people comment about um, religious people. And the truth is we can all be a bit religious sometimes. But I've heard people comment and they say something like this. Religiosity is more interested in rules than people. Well, I don't know what you think about that. In a sense it's right... But there's actually a problem with the statement. It's a false dichotomy. Because, see, it doesn't come down to rules versus people. It may end up that way with the rules that we make. But if you carry the, the logic right through, what you actually have to say is religiosity is more interested in God's law than people. And you actually end up... Because God's laws tell us what we need to do and you end up with God's law and people being opposed to one another. Do you think God's law and people are opposed to one another? No, it's not. Go back to the top ten. Ten commandments. Do not commit adultery. Is it a law? Is it? It is. Should we keep it? Yeah. Is it for people or not? Of course it's for people. You see the problem. If you say that religiosity is more interested in rules than people, you set up two things that are opposed to each other which aren't actually opposed to each other. The issue is, use another saying that we use, the issue is that religiosity puts the cart before the horse. That's what it does. And here's how it works. Religious people think that right relationship with God is downstream of right living so you've got to do the relationship so you've got to do you've got to follow the rules to be able to have a good relationship and I want to say to you this morning it isn't it isn't that's why religious people go around judging and criticizing because your living needs to be right or you're in the wrong 
And I want to say to you that everyone has got, every relationship that you have has got rules by which it operates. So Ange and I have been married for 21 years this year, right? Now imagine that Ange and I got married back in 2000. We set our vows to each other, which are the rules of a relationship, right? We go on the honeymoon, we come back two weeks later. She walks into the bedroom. I'm sitting there. I'm studying the vows that I made to her. And she goes, Pete, what are you doing? And I say, I'm studying the rules. I, I need to make sure that I fulfill all of these rules that I actually made to you. Do you think that she would go, Pete, that's so wonderful. <laughs> would she say that? No, she wouldn't, right? Why wouldn't she say it? Because the rules aren't the main thing. The relationship's the main thing. If you love your spouse, you will fulfill the rules. And it works that way between us and God. Religious people get the cart before the horse. Right living doesn't lead to right relationship. Right relationship leads to right living every single time. the way religious people think it's the way it really is so let me run through a few things about religious people you can see it in this passage and we can all be religious sometimes well let me run through a few things religious people are often blind to the bigger picture you just don't see it there's a big picture going on here with this man and they don't see it religious people think good relationships come from living a good life Now, good living helps relationships roll, but you just want to make sure that you don't get the cart before the horse. Religious people are motivated by fear. They don't always realise it, but they go round and there's this fear motivation going on for them because you can't do something wrong because if you do something wrong, then you're on the out and you don't want to be on the out. Religious people love the power that rules and rule-keeping give them. They, in their mind, think that they're on the right side of the law. (laughs) And so they exert power through judgmentalism and criticism over people who are on the wrong side of the law. Religious people are often harsh and critical. You can see that in this text, right? Who's doing that? That's a line that I use with my sons all the time at home. Someone comes along and one of the kids talks about something, you go, who is doing that? What a crazy thing to do. And I look at what the religious people say to this guy who's been an invalid for 38 years. You're breaking the rules. I just go, oh, that is harsh and critical. And yet at the end of the day, religious people live very small lives. They do because their lives are bound up in keeping the rules. As we go through this list, don't, don't forget all of our tendency to be religious from time to time. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus is even though there's this dispute about the Sabbath and the rules, he actually doesn't even engage the rules. He he doesn't talk about the rules. What he actually says is there's something that supersedes them. What is it? Well, in a sense, the thing which supersedes the rules is doing good. We see that through the Gospels. Jesus doing good on the Sabbath is a good thing to do. It doesn't matter what the rules are. I read in one commentator, they made this comment. I thought, this is... This is a really helpful comment. 
Compassion is a better indicator of proper behaviour than rules. You just go, yeah, that's, that's good. We see this in Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders. But he doesn't go there in this interchange. He appeals to something which sits underneath all of the good things which happen and it's good news. So you've got the man, the Jews, the good news. I rhymed it. Verse 17. What is it? My father is working until now and I am working. Now, let me tell you something. The Jews knew that the father had to work all the time. Right? Even though God rested on the uh, seventh day, they knew that he had to stay on the job. Why? Because the world would just career out of control. Um, the, the assurance of God's providence requires that on, a seventh, on the seventh day, God's still going to be on the job. I mean, you look in the Psalms, and the Psalms talk about God giving food to the animals. They talk about the, uh, the one who neither slumbers or sleeps, the one who watches over you. He's always on the job. And this is good news, right? This is the hope of the world. And this is where we want to end today. We would, we're going to end on an up today. Because in any situation, in every situation, God is on the job and he's at work. Every single one. So the question is never about whether God's doing anything. You know, that, that's when life gets messy and difficult for us, one of the questions in the middle of our pain that we ask is we go, where is God? He's not doing anything. And Jesus would say to you, my father is working until now and I am working. My father is working until now and I am working. So rather than asking the question, where is God? Why isn't he doing anything? Here's a, a better question to ask. What's he up to? If he always works and he always does stuff, what is he up to? My uh, nana and pop have passed away now. But, um, you know, you think, uh, you hear that word, uh, people potter around? That was my nana and pop. They were always out in the garden, out the back. And forgive me if this seems a bit uh, disrespectful to the Lord. But when I think about God always being at work, I think about my nana and pop in the backyard in the garden. You know, you go to their house and I was a young guy and you'd stand there and every now and then Pop's head would pop up, as it does, from behind a tree. What's he doing? He's carrying a pot plant somewhere and then can't see Nano. Then all of a sudden she stands up, she's got a hose in her hand and then she disappears again. It, it was just a backyard that was a garden and they just potted around in the backyard, always doing something. And when I think about this, truth about God now I think about my nan and pop because you know what God's always pottering around doing something you can't always see him but he's there like when I couldn't see my nan or pop it's like I didn't go well nan and pop must be in the bathroom no they're out there you just can't you can't quite see them so in the back of your mind you go I wonder what they're doing you know when you think about your life and the situations that you get in that's the way I think that you could think about God and what he's up to, he's always pottering around, snooping around, getting up to something. And because he is good, you can guarantee he will always be good. So in the middle, I want you to hear this. I want, I want this to just drop deep down inside of you this morning. In the middle of every moment, 
God is there and he's pottering around and he's up to things. He's up to good things. In the middle of the great moments, he will be right there up to good things. And in the heartbreaking moments, the moments where you fear that you're going to be crushed under the weight of what is going on, he's going to be pottering around getting up to some good things. And you know what? And he's in every other situation in between those two. This is the essence of this story, isn't it? A cripple for 38 years, the Sabbath, no faith, not much can be done. No way. (laughs) Jesus gets about doing good. Always there, always doing something, always up to something good. But this is actually not the main point that Jesus is actually making. The Jews knew that the Father was always at work. What Jesus was actually saying is he's saying, I'm the Father of one. I'm God. What he's saying is that he is God. He has the same authority as the Father. So your job, my job in the midst of every situation is to see if we can find out what God is up to. And you could just ask Jesus. I do this pretty often. I get in situations and I just go, man, it just feels like, it feels like I'm deserted. Where are you and what are you doing? And, and those kind of questions uh, in recent times have just been reformed a little bit where I go, God, I know that you're out there somewhere and that you're up to some good stuff. Can you just show me what it is? I just need to see that. And, you know, you can get in situations where uh, hope has evaporated. Have you ever been in those? And it's like, if you just get a morsel of God and what he's up to, if he just pops his head up from behind one of the bushes and you just go, yes, there's just a tiny little morsel of him doing something good, you can go on. You can go on in the strength of that for a month. You know what I'm talking about? So I'd encourage you, just ask the Lord to show you what he's up to. He will. I wonder if uh, you'd stand, stand with me. Um, love for the, the worship team to come up. We're going to take communion in a minute, but I actually just want to um, want to say something to you from Scripture. And uh, it's, it's on my heart this week to say it. Um, the first uh, couple of questions in this section from Scripture, the, uh, the names Israel and Jacob are mentioned, but I wonder if uh, as you listen to them, you could put your own name in there especially if you're in the middle of something that's difficult and painful at the moment. Anyway, I'd invite you to close your eyes if you want, because this is God speaking to you. Oh, Jacob, put your name in there. How can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? Oh, Israel... How can you say God ignores your rights? Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak. need to hear that today and strength to the powerless
Even youths will become weak and tired. The young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. Do you need new strength today? They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So Jesus, we have this magnificent story. One who is like us. An invalid, a a dehumanised person. Someone dehumanised by their own sin and we... We can see that in ourselves. We know that we dehumanise ourselves by our own sin. We get stuck, it becomes home for us. Like in the very beginning, Jesus, when you um, spoke over the face of the deep in creation, your sovereign word brought things into order. It brought things into being, into existence. And your word still makes things go right. It makes our hearts go right. And we see in the text today, in in John 5, that it makes crippled bodies go right. It's a powerful word. So God, we have hope in every situation. Not because we've got ability to be able to handle it or we've got some skill or wisdom that we've learned, even though those things help. Our hope in every situation is that you are always at work. You're always there doing things, up to good things. And I pray, God, for anyone today who can't see you and it all feels hopeless. It hurts and it just feels hopeless. God, would you let them know that you see and you hear the pain that they're in. And not only that, but you're right in the middle of it, pottering around, getting up to something good. God, I pray that you'd help them to see it. Help them to see just a snapshot, a glimpse of you, a glimpse of what you're up to. God, nourish them with that glimpse. Maybe this afternoon, lunch, tomorrow. Just pull the curtain back on the window and you let them see in and see what you're doing.